You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, with that incredible segue, I, uh, I now get to ascend the platform here. I want to say good morning. I'm so glad that you're here because this is church. We get to be the people of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, the new covenant community of the Spirit. That's what church is. And so I'm so thankful that you're here. This is one of those moments. It may not feel like it right now. You may be thinking, I, I don't know, it's just some brown chairs and a guy talking about 80s movies. That's right. But this is one of those moments where we get to have church where in eternity we'll look back and say that was a time when we didn't fully recognize it, but the Spirit of God was among the people of God as we studied the Word of God. So you are getting to experience it and participate in an eternal moment right now. So I want to welcome you to that. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel, and we're delighted that you're here. Want to let you know of some other things that are going on in the life of our church, in addition to the Mockingbird Conference, which I'm very excited about coming up in three weeks, but also beginning this Wednesday and Thursday, our Women's Bible Study is kicking off in Nehemiah, a study of Nehemiah. So if you have not yet gotten engaged with our Women's Bible Study downtown, then we invite you to get engaged with that this week. You can sign up for that out in the foyer. Also, our women's retreat is coming up. Uh, there's a sign up for that out in the foyer as well. So ladies, there's a lot of things going on for you. Ann Moody's been sort of uh, quarterbacking that whole process. If you want more information on a women's retreat, please talk to Ann but you can sign up for that in the foyer. A lot of opportunities to get involved. And of course, guys, there are men's groups meeting all over this campus all week long. There's about two or three meeting on Tuesday. Matt leads one on Wednesday and on Friday. Uh, Mark Alderson leads, I think last count, 17 different groups a day is what I think he's up to now. So there's plenty of opportunities for you to get involved uh, and be in small togetherness, gathered around the gospel. Now then, here's what I would like to do. I want to pray for us, and then I want us to unpack some scripture this morning as we continue to worship together. So let's pray, and we'll go to God's word. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered in this place. We pray, God, that despite all the other potential distractions, that you will speak louder, that you will speak more clearly, that you will speak more compellingly, that you will draw us to gaze upon your glory, and in so doing that we will be changed. God, you are worth that. So we commit the time to you, and we pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, this is church, and I say this all the time, and which means, of course, I'm going to say it again. Your being in church matters immensely and intensely. Because when we come to church and we worship corporately, when we respond to who God is, what God has done, that impacts and influences our thinking about Jesus. And I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but it is the most important thing about you. It's always a thrill to get to stand here and look at the folks that God has brought into this place and go, hey, this is an opportunity for all of these people to think slightly differently about Jesus than when they walked in, to move the needle ever so slightly on your thinking about Jesus. It's the very most important thing about you. 
Paul says it, Jesus says it, later on a guy named A.W. Tozer says it, because they're right. So my prayer is that as a result of us studying God's word this morning, that all of us will think a little bit differently, feel a little bit more deeply about Jesus. And what I want us to walk out of here this morning with is our big idea, and it goes like this. Jesus is my preparation. Now that's gonna hopefully make a lot more sense here in just a moment, but I wanna go ahead and spoil the punchline and give it to you now, Jesus is is my preparation. Maybe I should put another emphasis on a different syllable. Jesus is my preparation. How about Jesus is my preparation, or just to close it all out, Jesus is my preparation. We are in the Gospel of John. I'm gonna invite you to turn with me to chapter 14. We're in the Gospel of John, and we have been for some time since early last fall. We are marching rapidly now toward the cross. Easter is coming up. It is Resurrection Sunday on April 21st. And so we are now in John's gospel. We're in the upper room discourse. And things begin to slow down in John's narrative. We're now merely hours away from the crucifixion of the Christ in John's assembled narrative of this gospel. So I'm going to begin reading in chapter 14. It's a familiar passage, but I don't want that familiarity to take away from the glory and the majesty of what Jesus is saying here. John chapter 14, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, why does he say that? Because their hearts are troubled, do you see? We have a tendency as Westerners to read the gospel of John and any gospel or any piece of biblical literature and go, oh, well, chapter 13 is over. It's a new chapter. It's a new thing. No, no, no. Ignore the chapter distinction here. Something has just occurred in chapter 13. One of the 12 has walked out. The fellowship is broken. And that one who has walked out hasn't just left the room. You know, it's one of those weird deals when your buddy Judas, uh, Satan's inside of him and he's just left. That has a tendency to put a damper on the evening. When Satan enters one of your buddies and he has to leave the room. And then Peter says, hey, listen, we're never gonna depart from you. We're never gonna leave. Peter doing his very best to sort of respond to the, to the claim that Jesus makes. I am about to leave you. In a matter of hours, I'll be stripped, flogged, beaten, spat upon, mocked, hung on a cross. I'm leaving. Peter says, well, that doesn't matter. We're never ever gonna depart from you. Doing his best with his strong right arm to, to demonstrate his mortal strength and capacity. And Jesus goes, oh, Actually, Peter, you, no, you're, you're going to fail miserably uh, three times. You're going to betray me. And so their hearts are troubled. And yet God says, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is one of those clear claims to divinity and deity where Jesus says believing in God is believing in me. Believing in me is believing in God. I'm God different person than the father but the cure or the remedy or the antidote against anxiety is belief when i say belief i don't mean just general acceptance i mean literally living as if it's true that jesus is the christ the son of the living god your hearts are troubled and i want you to get this jesus is telling them i'm leaving i'm going away but i don't want you to be concerned i don't want you to be anxious because this has been the plan all along. 
Believe in God. Put your trust, put your faith. This has been the plan from eternity past. By the way, it's Passover at this point. They're gathered together in this upper room to celebrate Passover. This has been the plan all along where something guiltless, without blemish, that is innocent, dies for the guilty, the sin-filled, and the undeserving. Jesus says, it's my time. Early in John's gospel, we read of John the Baptist who says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a mere hours from taking place. And then Jesus says something familiar to us. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. So we're talking about preparations here. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, clearly Jesus is not merely talking about that one day when we die, we all get a nice little apartment in heaven. I get a nice little one-bedroom efficiency. Some of you get nice three-bedroom, two-bath. Some of you get penthouse corner suites. No, 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 no. Clearly, he's not talking about that. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Apparently, Jesus has been telling them over and over again, I am going to prepare a place. So what is Jesus talking about? What are these preparations? He says in verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. What are these preparations? Is it that all of our little apartments up in heaven are decked out in avocado shag carpet and Jesus is going to go all Chip and Joanna Gaines on them and put shiplap on the walls and get them ready for us and we're going to come in and go, wow, I can't believe what you've done with the place. Jesus, it's amazing. No. It's not that heaven is in need of renovation. That can't be it. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. I'm going to make preparation. What I'm going to do in the next few hours is preparation for you to have right standing before a holy God. Because listen, I am the only one who can stand in his presence. And I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, never sin throughout the entire process, never have resentment, bitterness, anger, malice, frustration in my heart. I'm going to go because this is God's plan for you. I am going to make preparation says, verse three, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Such important, very precise language here. This is not about Jesus coming to take me when I die. This is not even the second coming of Christ. Those are different expressions. There are biblical passages that speak to those truths. This is not that. This is a very specific language that Jesus says, I will come and take you to where I am. All through John's gospel, he's been saying, I have come to offer myself as king and the kingdom to Israel, but they have rejected. And so now I must go and get for myself sheep from another fold. I will go and I will build this new thing called the church. And I will go and you will see me again after I am resurrected and I will depart and I will not be with you. You will not see me again. But then I will come and I will bring you to myself. Speaking specifically of a time and a season when God will bring the church to where he is in Christ. Oh, just temporarily. And then we will return to the earth, which is our home for all eternity. Very specific language here. One of those hallmark passages that we understand God has a plan and he has always had a plan even though it hasn't been fully revealed until the New Testament. He will bring this group of people called the church to himself. 
Now, the Apostle Paul is going to further develop this notion, this idea, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he talks about the rapture of the church, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the people of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, when he brings them to himself. I will go again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying, I am your preparation. I go to prepare myself so that you can be in me. I'm not just going to tidy up heaven a little bit so that y'all can come over. No, 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 no. I am preparing the way. I'm going to receive the full brunt and judgment of God himself so that you do not have to. See, Jesus is my preparation. Verse four, and you know the way to where I am going. You know the way. Now, how would you respond if Jesus says that? Probably like Thomas. Thomas is the voice of all of John's intended readership. Thomas is the one who says, well, gosh, I don't know. I guess we'll just go with him to Bethany and die with him. But it's at the end of John's gospel that Thomas has the climax and the culmination of the entire gospel when Thomas says, my God and my Lord. It is Thomas who has finally believed, which is the entire point of John's gospel, so that you and I will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Like you keep saying you're going and you're the way, but, 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 but we don't know the way. What, what's the process? Just tell me what we're supposed to do. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A very well-known verse very famous passage many of us like to use when arguing with our unbelieving friends. But we have to remember in context what Jesus is talking about here. It's not about a process. It's a person. It's me. This is not Jesus arguing against Judaism or Jesus arguing against the Roman gods or Jesus arguing against Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or atheism. All of those things are not competitive. Those things are essentially the exact same thing. It is human effort around appeasing a deity. And Jesus says, it's not that those things are wrong. They are. It's that they're not the point. Those things are all about a process. This is about a person. It's me. I am your preparation. It's me. All of those other attempts at religion are really just the same stuff wrapped in a different delivery mechanism. No, no. It's me. I am the way. Thomas, you do know because you know me. And Jesus is the way because he is truth and life. Do you remember what he says to Martha in chapter 11 before he raises Lazarus from the dead? Martha, I am the resurrection. It's me, it's a person. I am the one who is your preparation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You see, a Christian is someone who understands, recognizes, and believes that only Jesus has right standing before God. And therefore, if I am to have right standing before God, I am to be in Christ. That's what that means. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that a claim to exclusivity? Absolutely. But is that Jesus' primary point? No, it's actually not. His point is that it's not a process that you and I go through and do, that it is a person. It is believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
You've seen me, you've seen God. Well, Philip, the second disciple to speak up now, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. By the way, that's one of the marks of a disciple, always simply wanting to see God's glory. But Philip's trying to do a little bit more, like, hey, listen, I remember the stories, Lord. I remember the stories, Jesus, of guys like Moses, how they saw God. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, you don't. It will cook you down. You don't want to see that. So God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, puts his hand over the cave, covers him up, and passes by so that Moses just can, that's it, see the back of God's robe. And it totally makes Moses glow. Philip is thinking of theophanies, where people in the Old Testament see God. Like Ezekiel has that vision in chapter one. Like Isaiah has that vision in chapter six. And Philip says, if you'll just do that, we will see. Then it'll be enough for us. Jesus says something absolutely incredible. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What Jesus says is astonishing. Guys, what Moses saw was me. What Ezekiel saw was me. We already know from chapter 12 that what Isaiah saw was Jesus. Saying, you don't need a theophany. You've had one for three plus years. I have been with you. I am he who perfectly reveals, demonstrates, and exhibits the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Well, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, Jesus is gonna repeat himself over and over again. He's also gonna be redundant. He's also gonna say the same thing again and again because it's the mother of learning. He's going to say six times in this chapter that the Father is in him and he's in the Father. Six times, almost as if he wants us to understand that he and God are of the same essence. They're the same nature. They are of the same godness, different persons, but that he is God and the Father is God. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is about God's sending me. You've seen me, you've, sent, you've seen him. I am merely doing his business. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If it's too much for you to grasp the things that I'm saying, then at least look around. Do you remember the transformation of water into wine? Do, do you remember the calming of the storm? Do you remember the walking on the water? Do you remember the feeding of the thousands, the healing of the lame man, the healing of the blind man? Um, you know, the whole Lazarus come out episode? Only God incarnate himself could do those things. So even if you don't understand cognitively the things that I'm saying, remember the things that I have done and believe. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, one of the key sayings of Jesus, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Hmm, that's odd. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now this verse has been misapplied for millennia. Because let me just tell you, I do believe in Jesus. I love me some Jesus, and I've never fed 20,000. I can barely feed the four people in my house. If it weren't for Pop-Tarts, we'd starve. 
Okay, so this whole, if I just believe in Jesus, I'm gonna do greater works than Jesus? Wait, hold on, Jesus walked on the water. What's greater than that? Like just one foot on the water, I guess, right? Would that be greater? I, what, what's going on here? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Really, is that the case? Whatever I say, if I just say in Jesus' name, then we have a contract. We have a deal, Jesus, we pinky promised. If I say it in your name, you've gotta do it. So that whole mortgage thing, I, did you just get rid of that? No, he, he, he never does. That's kinda weird. So, so what's going on here? Well, clearly, it can't be merely a name it, claim it thing. I want that, and Jesus, you have to do it because I said the magic words, in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. No, 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 no. Whatever is for his name, in his name, as if, Jesus himself were praying to the Father. We get to resemble and reflect and represent heaven here on earth. And we know what his will is because of his word here on earth. Clearly, we can't just say some magic words and have Jesus do whatever we want. We know better than that. So what we have a tendency to do is to ignore this passage and go, well, I don't really see that as my practical walking around reality, so meh. Moving on, hold on, Jesus is not wasting words here. Clearly Jesus executes perfectly what we call an active obedience, fulfilling the law of God's moral righteousness, the law of Moses, perfectly, his entire life in thought, word, and deed. But we also have Jesus as our example of what we will one day be, not fully yet, it has begun, it's been inaugurated, it's been initiated, it's been instigated, but it is not fully realized yet. All of the works of Jesus are not actually the works of Jesus. They are the works of the Holy Spirit sent by God. Jesus, though fully God, is fully man. He lays aside his holy prerogative. Every work and wonder that Jesus does is in the power of the Spirit. A sinless man, fully dependent on the Spirit of God, fully doing the will of God, which is one day what you and I will be like. When finally the presence of sin is gone and we are 100% dependent upon his spirit, 100% doing the will of God, the things that we see Jesus do in the gospels will be our normative daily experience. Now, not yet because we still had the presence of sin, but Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom that he will usher back in fully and finally. That will be your and my final experience. In fact, there's a guy named mm, John who writes an epistle that says, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. We will do the things that Jesus does normatively. Right now, no but it is a promise of God's eternal plan that is as yet fully to come to fruition. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, resembling in heaven here on earth, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I confess, at this stage in my life, still struggling with the presence of sin, I would have a tendency to ask Jesus for all kinds of things because of my sin nature. But there will come a time when I no longer am affected by the presence of sin, but whatever I ask will be precisely what he would have me ask. This is the church. It's supposed to be. Not a group of people who are gathered around a certain doctrine or a certain political leaning. It is people who have been the recipients of Jesus's preparations. 
We resemble on earth his will in heaven. Oh, you know that whole thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our prerogative and our purvey. Jesus is making preparations. He says in verse 15 now, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now this has also caused many people to stumble as if this is a transaction. Since I love you, I guess I have to go out of obligation and duty and do a bunch of stuff. It's not at all what Jesus is talking about. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is the marvelous thing. Jesus is saying, I am ushering in a new age. Another helper. So who's the first helper? Jesus is the first helper that God himself sends. It's Jesus to be with us, to demonstrate, to show us what righteousness is and looks like. But I will send you another helper. Right in this verse, we have the glory of the Trinity revealed to us. Jesus uses a very specific word. I will send you another. It is a different of the same kind. Not a different of a different kind. In other words, this helper, this paraclete that he calls the Holy Spirit is also God. So we have God, one essence. Now we have three persons. This is sort of the first direct introduction of the Holy Spirit. We've had the Spirit discussed in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. We've had the Spirit discussed in chapter 7 when at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus talks about the coming Spirit, the river maker who will permanently indwell. But Jesus says, this is a new thing. My Father will send another of the same kind but a different person to help you, to paraclete, to come alongside and exhort and encourage and counsel you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell, not to take over your being so that you just do a bunch of stuff mindlessly like a robot. No, to encourage and amplify you to understand God's will and to do it, which is our responsibility. See, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God never permanently indwells anybody, ever. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David, nobody. He comes onto a person for a season or for a task and then departs. Nobody except Jesus is ever permanently indwelled by God's spirit. But now Jesus says, I'm going to send another and he will permanently forever for all eternity, he will be in you and you will be in me and I am in the father. It's an astonishing declaration. For all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been perfectly mutually interdwelling one another in perfect joy and sinless loving community. And God says, because of the work of my Son, you are now invited into that. You people, you're the worst. But I love you so much that I will do whatever it takes to make preparation that you will be in my son, my spirit will be in you, and you will be in me. It's an astonishing declaration. I will send you the helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. The spirit of God cannot live in an unredeemed space. He will not share residence with the unclean. We are regenerate. We are made new, new creations. See, Christianity is a person who is prepared to be the eternal dwelling of God himself. That's astonishing. It's not merely about going to heaven one day when I die. It is being transformed into a new creation where God himself takes up residence. 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God literally cannot be closer to a human being than he is in this age right now because he indwells that believer. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. They will see Jesus post-resurrection. That's an immediate truth for the disciples, for those apostles, and it is a comfort to those who will be the church. He will return for them as well. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Jesus is saying something pretty amazing, that he is their preparation. I will be resurrected, which is the guarantee that you as well will be resurrected. So don't let your hearts be troubled. This is how this story is going to go. Whoever has, verse 21, oh sorry, verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So here again we have obedience. But we have to remember, John intends for us to read this gospel all at once. What are the commandments that Jesus talks about in this gospel? It's not about a call to higher morality. Oh, there's other gospels that will deal with that, but John's gospel is very specific. What are the commands of Christ in John's gospel? Abide with the Son. Love Him, love others. This is not, I have to do a bunch of stuff so that God will love me back. It's not that at all. Keeping His commandments means persistently, frequently, rightly, regularly remembering our God, thinking of Jesus more rightly and more regularly. That is keeping his commandments and that produces love which produces obedience. Our obedience is never to be our primary focus. That is legalism, that is works, that is law, that is death. Our focus is to be on Jesus whose spirit then produces that obedience in us. That's Galatians 5. Paul blows up the whole thing later on in Galatians and says, no, we focus on Jesus and the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he does all that because of our love of Christ that flourishes within us. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot. How would you like that? Just to make sure. Oh, thanks, Mom and Dad. You couldn't name me something else? Timmy? How about Timmy? No, Judas, Ugh. but not Iscariot. More than likely, this is Judas, also called Thaddeus. Thaddeus says to him, now that's interesting. We've had Thomas, we've had Philip, now we have Thaddeus, we think, speak up during this discourse of Jesus in the upper room. Why? To demonstrate to us that none of these disciples understand. They don't get it on their own, which means they didn't make this stuff up. This has been God's plan all along. Thaddeus speaks up and says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Why are you gonna do all this for us but not to the entire world? And Jesus is gonna say something pretty amazing. Jesus answers him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, oh, listen, there's coming a day when I and the Father will manifest ourselves to the whole world and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, but that age is not yet to come. Right now, this is for those who believe, who love, we will indwell, we will be with them. 
See, this has been God's plan from the very beginning, Jesus is saying. In the Old Testament, the primary focus of deity was, of course, God the Father, all through the Old Testament. But then we get the gospel accounts, and Jesus is the primary focus of the gospel accounts. But then from the book of Acts all the way through to the book of Jude, it is the Holy Spirit that takes primacy as he gathers to himself in the name of Jesus for the Father a people, the people of God. And then in Revelation, the Son institutes the kingdom finally, and then he hands all of that back to the Father. There's this wonderful cycle and symmetry. This has been God's plan from eternity past. Now, sin and evil and suffering and troubled hearts seems to be the primary thing in our world a whole lot, at least it does in mine. But when we remember in the scope of eternity, those momentary sufferings are but a speck, a glimmer, a flicker in the eternal timeline. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This has been the plan all along. Verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. This is not my doing, this is not my program. This is what God the father himself is doing. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things bring and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Just as the Apostle Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient, this is Jesus saying to these guys, these knuckle-dragging, not understanding disciples, what you're going to write is also going to be inspired. It is going to be Scripture. But not only that, it's also for us as later disciples that the Spirit of God will illumine and help us to understand God's Word. This is a crystal clear, critically important verse, not only for the inspiration of the New Testament, but also for the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are all in this one verse, even though that single word Trinity is not present. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here's our bookend. The chapter starts with, hey, listen, this is how it's going to go. It's going to look bad. It's going to get darker before it gets brighter, but do not be anxious for anything. I give you peace, not as the world does, where you have to do a bunch of stuff and try to salve your soul. No, no, no. I give it to you freely and fully by grace. It is a gift that you don't earn, nor do you accomplish it. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Not that he's of a different substance or essence or nature. He has a different role from eternity past. The Father has had primacy, eternally begetting the Son. It's been said that if the disciples would fully have understood what Jesus was about to go in to do in his death, his burial, his resurrection, they would have gathered around the cross and rejoiced. But they couldn't have understood. They didn't understand that he was going to make preparation, preparing himself to be in so that they could stand before a holy God. Verse 29, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you 
may believe. There's that refrain, that theme in the Gospel of John again, so that you will believe. I'm going to predict and tell you how all of this is going to go so that when it happens, you will be reminded by the Spirit and you will understand that this has been God's plan all along. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. I love that verse. It has nothing to do with evil winning or Satan striking the blow. No, 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 no. Love is sovereign over evil. This is God's plan all along. I am here on God's business. This has nothing to do. In fact, Satan's going to think he will win a battle. He will lose the war because of what's going to take place at the cross. But I do as the Father has commanded me because God so loves the world that he gives his only son. So that, verse 31, the world may know that I love the Father. I'm not insane. I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not crazy. I am, in fact, the Son of God. Rise. Let us go from here. Preparations have to be made. Now, I also love Jesus as a good preacher because he says, rise, let's leave. And then he's going to talk for three more chapters. <laughs> so what do we take away? What do we... What do we learn from chapter 14 and all of this discourse that Jesus gives his disciples? Let me just give you three very quick implications that I think we can take away from this chapter. Number one, God's house is Jesus's body. I know that's weird, but that's okay. I want us to think more precisely and slightly differently about Jesus than when we walked in. God's house is Jesus's body. When Jesus says... In his father's house, there are many rooms. That's not just a reference to heaven. It has to be way more than that. Although, that'd be great and all. There's way, way more than that. Now, earlier in John's gospel, in chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus is in the temple, and he calls it my father's house. He says, this is my father's house, the place where God communes with man and vice versa. But Jesus says, I'm doing a new thing. This is my father's house. It's me. I am the temple. I am now the place where God dwells with men and men dwell with God. It's me. He picks up on that in chapter eight at the Feast of Tabernacles and says, listen, the slave remains for a short time, but then leaves. But the son never departs the house. I am the house. I am my Father's house. I am the dwelling of God on earth. And if you want to dwell with God, you have to be in me, in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you are in Christ. God's house is Jesus' body. It's massively important for how we think of ourselves in the here and now. Our future eternal reality is present right now. We are in Christ God's house. This is why when we come together in church, we can actually worship in spirit, in truth. Despite being sin-soaked people, we are also in Christ. And so the things that we confess corporately, the things that we sing and say together about God, God receives because we are in Christ. Let me, let me, let me just Say this more strongly if I possibly can because I want this to change how, how I think about myself, how I think about my God. Being in Christ is a massive theological truth. It's not that my practical walking around reality actually changes all that much. I still have sin issues. Those of you that know me well go, oh man, does he ever? Yes, I do. But being in Christ means that God chooses to see me differently. 
Just, just, just hear that. I, I, I still suffer. I still struggle. I wrestle with sin. But God, in his grace and his mercy, he chooses to see me different than I actually am. I see you as you are. You see me as I am. And we all go, Ugh. But God chooses to see me as though I am his son, Jesus. And there's his choice to see me differently actually changes the way I now live and see the world in which I live. That's the gospel. Because God has chosen to see me in Christ. God's house, when he says I go to prepare a place, it's him, Jesus is my preparation. And there are many rooms. <laughs> and there are many rooms, there's room for all. And it's a house, it is a dwelling. It's not a hotel. It's not a KOA camp. This is for family. It's not people who are visitors passing through. It is a home. Hoikia is the word. And there is plenty of space. And it is a permanent dwelling where firstborn sons, whether male or female, firstborn sons dwell with God because we are in Christ. Second implication. Now I sped through this rather quickly because he repeats himself so much, Jesus does, six times about being in the Father and obeying and doing all of these things. The second implication goes like this. Knowing God leads to knowing God, which might not sound terribly helpful, but it is. Perhaps you grew up in a tradition, I know that I did, that said obedience leads to knowing God, which is a dangerous dangerous statement because that puts all of the onus on you. You have to do a bunch of stuff in order to transactionally know God. Not biblically sound. Or perhaps you've even heard it nuanced and correct that says, actually, knowing God leads to obedience. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But Jesus here unloads a much deeper and grander truth and reality. Knowing God leads to knowing God. Yes, obedience is crucially important. But in this case, in John's gospel, it is all about turning to and seeing and being gobsmacked by the glory and the goodness and the grace of Jesus, which produces in us a desire for obedience. Speaking of our Mockingbird Conference, where Dr. Paul Zoll a couple of years ago said, when we love him, then it becomes this transformation in us where what we want to do becomes synonymous with what we ought to do. But that is only produced in a love of Jesus. That is his command. Love the Lord your God. His plea to his disciples, Jesus' plea to his disciples, is that they believe God and they believe him. Those that do with persistence and regularity are those that obey and are in fact his walking around will in this world. Number three, what's true of Jesus is true of you. I don't know that any of us think rightly about this. Accepting, of course, deity, divinity. None of us are God. None of us are divine. But other than that, what is true of Jesus is true of you. It is true of me. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It has nothing to do with a particular sphere of morality or a political leaning or a voting construct. Nothing to do with that. It is what is true of Jesus is true of me. It is the spirit in us and us in Christ and Christ in the Father. Now that has an immense amount of practical implications. If what is true of Jesus is true of me, then my goodness, 
my struggles with addiction or my struggles with anger or my struggles with this? Can you imagine Jesus struggling with addiction? No. Because the Spirit of God is so perfectly indwelling him, leading him, guiding him, directing him, and he is in the Father, and that is true of us if we will but allow ourselves to look to him and to love him more. Jesus was told by God, this is my son, and in him I am well pleased. Do you know that that is precisely how God the Father thinks of you? This is my son, and I could not be more pleased with him or her. Because we are in Christ, our position can never improve or change. How could it? We are in Christ. See, Jesus is our preparation. He tells them at the beginning of the chapter. He tells them at the end of the chapter. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I want to remind you, this is on Thursday evening. What kind of a person would do this? What kind of a person would make all of this preparation in his own life, his death, for people like Peter, for people like me, who are utterly dim and totally undeserving? What kind of person would say, don't let your hearts be troubled when in a matter of hours he's going to go out, be tortured, humiliated, shamed, mocked, spat upon, beaten, and hanged on a cross. And yet he's saying, I give you peace. I give you peace. Don't be troubled. I'm going to do this. I'm going to experience the ultimate hostility and emptiness so that you never have to. I give you peace the utter absence of hostility and emptiness, I give it to you. What kind of a person would do this? Only Jesus, and that's John's entire point. Not only could he do this for us, but he did do this for us because he loves us. So John's plea through this whole gospel is that you and I will believe in Jesus all the more, and in so doing, he will become more beautiful and more lovely to us to the extent that our hearts crave him even more. It's actually John's final point as he writes the book of Revelation some 10 years after his gospel. His theme of the whole book of Revelation is those who overcome, those who experience the victory are simply those who crave Christ. So may all of us, you and me, crave Christ more as we walk out of this place this morning because Jesus is our preparation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We thank you for that gospel, for that good news, for that great story. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is still trying to find a process by which they can experience eternity and life and abundance and joy and fullness, would you impress upon their hearts this morning, God, that it is a person, it is your son Jesus, it is not a process. And may they be led irresistibly by your spirit into a saving knowledge of your son. And for the rest of us, Father, who are believers, would we believe all the more? Would we gaze more deeply upon this Jesus? Would we recognize that our present reality reflects our eternal reality, that we are in Christ and you choose to see us accordingly? Father, thank you for Jesus that he is our preparation. Would you continue to lead us forward by your spirit and by your word? We pray all these things the only way we can, by your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Hey, thanks so much for being with us. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. We'll be dismissed here in a moment. I want to remind you, ladies especially, to please go out and sign up for our women's retreat and for Bible studies that are starting up this Wednesday and Thursday. Now, may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May you receive it. May you reflect it. God bless. Have a great week. You're dismissed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.